Let me ask you to turn to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 6. I want you to turn to the very end of the book of Galatians this morning as we uh, dig into our text today. I haven't looked back to see when we started the book of Galatians, but uh, we've been here a little while. And uh, it is almost like saying goodbye to an old friend as we come to this part of the uh, word here. Let me share with you a little story this morning as we get underway. There was a, several years ago, um, three or four years ago, there was a, a fire that broke out in uh, an apartment complex in Haverhill, Massachusetts. And the news story on ABC News was that um, a young mother named Christina Simonis um, realized that uh, her apartment was on fire. And uh, she was, I think, on the third floor. And um, she had a son, a young son, an infant son, 18-month-old son, whose name was Cameron. And as she realized that the apartment was on fire, that uh, things were uh, critical, that she needed to take action and take action now, um, that they were trapped, she ran to the window. She grabbed her son Cameron and she wrapped herself around him and she leapt out of that third floor window. Now, you think about that for just a minute. She landed. Cameron was safe. She was protected. He was protected in his mother's arms. And and she said, she told ABC News, she said, I just knew we were either going to die or we were going to get out of there. And while Cameron remained unscathed from the fall and from the, the jump, I guess I should call it, she suffered serious spinal injuries. She said, still, she said, I don't regret the decision. All I was thinking about was getting him out of there. He mattered way more than I did. I think that story is appropriate on a Sunday morning that we mark sanctity of human life first and foremost. Now, I know Cameron's an 18-month-old and not unborn, but still, that mother did everything in her power to protect that child. And I think we as a church should stand that way for the unborn. But as I was thinking about that story, I ran across it this week in my uh, reading, and, and I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, you know what? That is almost exactly the way that the Apostle Paul felt about the Galatian Christians. Paul's love for the Galatians was as fiercely maternal as as Christina's for Cameron. He had not gilded the lily with them in any way. He had not pulled punches. He had spoken the truth in love. He was strident in his criticism of of the false teachers. Uh, Paul had not been defending just some theological concept, some theological doctrine. He had been caring for his child, this church to which his efforts with the gospel had given birth. He was loving them enough that he actually bore in his body the stripes for his love. But for Paul, the Galatian Christians were a lot like newborns in the faith. All was at risk. The temple was ablaze. Religious arsonists had come in and had set the fire. 
And Paul comes to this final paragraph in his epistle to them, his letter. And surely, I think, as Paul's writing verses 11 to 18 here, I think Paul is, is wrestling in his heart with this idea. How do I, in this letter, so that it continues to, to do its work in the hearts and the lives of these Galatian Christians that I love so deeply and care so much about? How do, how do I end this so that it continues to do its work? Now, I know Paul's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, and, but I, sh I am sure that Paul wrestled with that. This morning, I'm going to read verses 11 to 18, and I want you to just remember those ideas, those concepts of, of Paul's love for his infant church, Paul's love for uh, the Galatian Christians, and his willingness to give himself uh, for their needs. And let's hear what the Holy Spirit will say to us today. This is the inerrant, inspired, infallible Word of God. Again, verse 11, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And now our text for today, verse 15 and following. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. For from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, I ask you that your Holy Spirit would enliven our hearts, our minds, our eyes, that we might see the beauty of the grace of the gospel of Jesus here today. Oh Lord, speak to our hearts. May we be a different people today because we've been in your presence. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, I focused my attentions on what it means to seek first and foremost the glory of the cross, to, to, to what it means to glory in the cross, to live in light of the gospel and the fact that we've been loved and redeemed by our Savior, Jesus Christ. This morning, I'm going to close the book of Galatians out for us. And, and like I said a moment ago, it is, it is kind of a sad thing. It's kind of a sad day for David and myself to come to the end of this book that, that we love so much because this book is all about the gospel of grace, about the grace of God, about the way grace sets us free for Jesus Christ. I mean, I, this has just been a, a marvelous um, walk through the book of Galatians. And, and I'll tell you, I've preached on Galatians across the years of ministry, I think four or five times. I've enjoyed it more this time than ever before. 
It's just a wonderful book. It's a wonderful uh, message. It's something that, that my heart needs to hear over and over again, and I think maybe yours does too. So, one last ser- sermon, one final volley, if you will, um, and uh, let's listen to Paul's words. So, in verse 15, Paul begins to, he, he just attacks the emptiness of legalism head on. I mean, he just, he's like, I've said it all. Let's just one more time, let's just be sure that this penetrates. Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. All right, what does he mean? What is he saying there? In other words, the new creation lies beyond, behind, uh, above, I guess, overarching the ethnic boundaries, uh, the, the cultural, religious ideas. Law by its very nature, is something that slays and that divides. The new creation, however, is a work of grace. Circumcision means nothing. Uncircumcision doesn't matter one way or the other. You are not righteous before God by the things that you do. You're just not. The new creation is is only a work of grace. To to the Apostle Paul, the new creation has two aspects, okay? And I've talked about this before. You've probably heard uh, this from the pulpit here uh, more than than, uh, I need to, uh, you know, do this over and over again. But Paul's always talking about the present reality and about a future certainty, okay? Paul is always talking about, and, and the way I coined the phrase is the now right here where you and I are living, the right now and the not yet. The promises of the gospel, the promises of what God is going to do in the future, the assurances that God is at work now and he is doing things and things are different now because you're in Christ and things are going to be radically different in the not yet, okay? He's always showing us that now and not yet. The new creation isn't solely futuristic, when, when Paul says that we are new creatures in Christ, he's not just talking about when we get to heaven. He's talking about here. He's talking about right now in this world. We are new creatures in Jesus Christ. But he's also talking about the not yet, the future. When every tear is going to be wiped away and death and mourning and crying and pain will be no more. The promises of Revelation 21.4, the promises of the gospel, all those things are yet for us, are yet to come. They are future glory that we look forward to. So you're already a new creation, raised with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places through the Spirit of God. If you're a believer, it's like we straddle these two now and not yet kind of beings, these, these time frames. This lifestyle, this this world that we live in. And look, this isn't just some sort of biblical pie-in-the-sky future that we're talking about here. This is reality. This is not a fantasy. God minted a new humanity when when Jesus went to the cross. God answered Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. What did Jesus pray? You remember what he prayed? He prayed, Father, Holy Father, Keep them in your name which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Wow. 
<laughs> that, that we would be one just like the, the Trinity is one. Think about that. That one new humanity. Paul actually uses a, a phrase that has tripped some people up, but doesn't bother me too bad. He says in verse 16, As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Well, there's a great way to talk about us. We are the Israel of God. We are the true Israel. We are indeed Adam's offspring because we are Christ's children. The Israel of God, verse 16. It's not some sort of Judaistic theocracy, uh, you know, the false teachers are trying to establish by law-keeping, and we're going to usher in this new uh, Jewish-Christian uh, kind of economy and life and everything else. And, and if you abide by the Jewish rules of circumcision, then you can be a part of the Israel of God. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the fact that Christ has engrafted the whole, uh, everyone who trusts in him, the, the Israelite as well as the Gentile. That there's no dividing wall. There's no division between slave and free. There's no division between male and female. There's no division between the sons of Abraham and the sons of the rest of the world. We are the true Israel if we are in Jesus Christ. There's no separate category of believers. I love the music of the Jews for Jesus. You remember the Jews for Jesus? I don't know if they're still around or not. Haven't kept up with them. But you know what? We need to be careful with those kinds of distinctions because, sure, I mean, I, I think we ought to create a group of folks called the Cubans for Jesus. And, and I think we ought to create a group of people that are called the, the Scottish for Jesus and, and everything else. You know, Paul's talking about the true Israel of God, the church being one with no barriers. Some people have said, well, Paul's trying to create some sort of, um, I don't know, a special category of people, you know, um, that, uh, uh, you know, are just, they're special because they come out of a Jewish background. And you know what? Dispensational theology tends to let that happen. I think that's a dangerous, dangerous way to view the church of Jesus Christ. That's not a biblical view of the church. That's not a Galatian view of the church of Jesus Christ. We need to be careful with those ideas. Paul's talking about the Israel of God is us. Didn't know you felt that Jewish, did you? We are. Specifically, the true descendants of Abraham, the heirs of the faith, are not those who follow the law, but they are those who, who embrace gospel rule. And there's a distinction. It's made up of those, those who walk by the rule of faith in Christ. Where we meet in Christ, where we come together in Jesus, not in the flesh, there ought to be peace between brothers and sisters too. There ought not be division. And Paul saw that all those old divisions between slave and free, male and female, Jew and Gentile, had been put to death on the cross. 
That's the message of the book of Galatians. You know, we're, we're not talking in wishful ideas that may not be realized or something like that. We're talking about what is. That's what Paul says here. The, that's what the constant preaching of the gospel reveals. Where the gospel isn't preached, where, where the good news of the gospel of grace is not clearly proclaimed, what happens in the church? Factions, division, law-keeping, I served in the church at one point, and I'm not going to tell you where it was, but as a staff, we had kind of a nasty um, way to talk about s some uh, folks in our uh, congregation. Uh, they were called the kitchen Nazis. They were so legalistic that if you went into the kitchen as a staff member during the week to, to heat up your lunch in a microwave... They knew you had been there. And they wanted to be sure that we knew that that kitchen was for church events. It wasn't for personal use. And they kept a lot. My wife is looking at me like, don't you say anymore. <laughs> I can remember going in there one time and being very, very, very careful that I, there was no evidence that I had been there. They caught me. <laughs> Division. Part, and, and, and a spirit that says, this is mine. This is my area. This is something that I do. And don't mess it up. Don't, that comes in the church. Division over silly things happens when the gospel isn't being preached in the body of Christ. Law and the flesh rush in to fill the void when the gospel's not being proclaimed is what I'm trying to tell you today. When the gospel is preached, when it's received by faith, the barriers to real fellowship are real. Okay, now maybe we need to clean up the kitchen after we're done. And that would be the loving way to respond. But it's not a law. And there's a difference there. You know... Let's not raise the barriers of shame and guilt and fear. Let's put those aside and let's be the body of Christ. Little wonder Paul was, was livid then, okay? The Judaizers were working to rebuild what Christ had torn down. You know, um, if, if the Judaizers had won, then civil and sectarian warfare would have taken place in the church and it would carry on for centuries. But the gospel wins out. Only as the church submits over and over again to the gospel, hearing again and again the word of God's cleansing grace, does transformation of lives happen in the Lord's house. Folks, we need to repeat the gospel of grace to ourselves day after day after day after day. You need, to, you need to, it needs to be like, a, like one of those songs that you cannot get out of your head after you've heard it on the radio, you know? You know how that is. How about, it needs to be the song that never ends. This is the song that never ends. Okay. We need to put new words to that. This is the grace of God that never ends. See, I didn't work that out too well, did I? We need to repeat to ourselves that we have been created in Christ as new creatures in him. 
when grace is preached, it's like the Holy Spirit's elbow nudges us in the ribs and says, hey, I'm talking to you. You need to hear this. You need that. To receive that, though, we need to know that we have a need for the Spirit's movement, that we need, to, that we need the gospel of grace. And, and it's an, in humility that we turn outside of our law-keeping natures uh, to want to receive grace. I was reading uh, Tozer, A.W. Tozer, uh, and, and he wrote this about 70 years ago, I think. Um, I, I, I think I checked the uh, uh, copyright on, on the um, thing that I was reading, and, and I thought, oh, that was 70 years ago. Tozer said this. He said, to be specific, the self-sins are self-righteousness, self-pity, self-confidence, self-sufficiency, self-admiration, self-love, and a host of others like them. They dwell too deep within us and are too much a part of our nature to come to our attention till the light of God is focused upon them. Tozer is saying we need to turn from our self-sins and look to Jesus. You know, but... Hasn't our world told us? Hasn't, doesn't everything in, in culture tell us, oh, we're supposed to be strong. We're supposed to be stable. You men, you need to be manly men. You need to be the leaders of your home, strong, stable, secure. You need to be. And isn't turning from self-confidence and self-sufficiency a little bit like being wimpy? It's a technical term. Are, are, are we being wimpy when we do that? The answer is no. It's only when we let Jesus take the bowl, take the towel, and wash our feet, and wash all of us that we know his fullness. Only when he washes us do we truly experience, experience the peace and mercy that Paul's talking about in verse 16 of our text here. Andrew Murray, who uh, was a Scottish missionary, um, he uh, was a champion of the South African revival in the uh, 1860s, uh, he, he wrote these words. He said, Brethren, here is the path to the higher life, down, lower down, down. Just as water ever seeks and fills the lowest place, so the moment God finds the creature abased and empty, his glory and power flow in to exalt and to bless. That's what Jesus is talking about when Jesus says unless you change and become like little children you will never enter the kingdom of God what is what is childlike humility anyway you ever tried to put your finger on that to, to think through what that is child child childlike humility it's not a lack of intelligence it's really a lack of guile isn't it it's the lack of an agenda, so to speak. Jesus says, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Lack of guile. That's that, that's that kind of fleeting time when we're young, before we've accumulated enough pride or, or position to care what other people might think. We were riding home in the truck last night from Sanford, and and it had become a longer ride because of the work, road work that they're doing, as you all know, I'm sure. And 
um, our son and uh, his wife and uh, our two grandchildren decided it was time to FaceTime uh, with Nana. And our youngest grandson, who's soon to be three, um, loves to draw. And uh, they had given him an Etch-A-Sketch. And uh, they were sitting in, in their car, in their vehicle, waiting to go into the restaurant that was, you know, had too many people and they were waiting for a table. And so Josh was back there and Josh was drawing. And, and I'll be honest with you, when I saw the thing on FaceTime that Josh had drawn, uh, the only idea I could come up with of what it was was French fries. You know. And, jo and so Nana asked, Josh, what, you, what is that? Is that your daddy? And Josh says, yep. You know, and, and a, the few, a few minutes later, and we're carrying on more conversation, and Josh is guileless. He's, he's like, you know, this is a great picture of daddy. He doesn't say it that way, but, you know, that's in essence what he says. He has no guile. It's the same kind of attitude as, as a kid who, who runs through the, the rain puddle, you know, and just splashes all over creation. Doesn't care. Rolls on the grass with a puppy. It's kind of like my son. I, uh, just illustrations after illustrations here. And my son... We we were shopping in a in a fairly nice department store when he was probably three or four I don't remember, and he was being incorrigible you know he was being a preacher's kid he was running around you know under the racks and in the racks and having a great time and laughing and hiding and you know doing what kids do, and his mother and I were appropriately embarrassed by his behavior, and in the whole process of everything. He runs by this mannequin, this, you know, standing there, and he knocks the mannequin's arm off, okay? And he picks up the mannequin's arm, and he looks up at her with the deepest sincerity, and he says, sorry, lady. <laughs> that is childlike guilelessness. That is what it means Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom. That's childlike humility. It's the opposite of ignorance. It's just being willing to accept the reality and call things what they are, even when it's hard. It's through the preaching of grace that the Holy Spirit kind of blows the whistle and stops the game. It's through the preaching of grace, only in the cross of Jesus that Jesus relieves the pressure of our guilt and of our sin. Only the cross silences the voice that, that runs in your, in your conscience that says, you need to do more. You haven't done enough. Only the cross is what removes the shameful skeleton in the closet that you're afraid is going to pop out at some inappropriate moment and bring judgment crashing on your head. Only the mercy of the cross brings true peace. That's what grace is about. Throughout history, Christ has taken the weak, he's taken the fallen, the lame, the morally bent, he's taken the worst of sinners to his heart. He's cleansed addicts and forgiven serial adulterers. He's washed the feet of social outcasts. He's cleansed the conscience of cowards. He's forgiven religious pride of the pharisaical. 
He's thrown out demons, actual and symbolic. He's healed broken relationships. He's created peace where only war raged. He's brought the deranged to their feet. He's clothed them and put them back in their right mind. No treatment program, no amount of medication, no change in political system, no ritual, no worldly power can do that. Only forgiveness. Only grace does that. This uh, week, we had some friends visit. Been friends of ours, family friends, for 30 years, 35 years. Uh, maybe more than that, I don't know. Father estranged from 30-year-old daughter. Been that way for a long, long, long time. Some of the issues are his fault, some are hers, no doubt. Flew out across the country to go see their daughter for the first time in 20 years. Because the gospel of grace has changed the father's heart. Y'all, that's what grace does. That's, what, that's how grace heals. That's the concrete fruit of of what Paul has written to the Galatian church about. Lives that are changed and that are touched. We'll look at verse 17, if you will, for just a minute. Paul kind of begins to close the letter completely out with a personal note. From now on, Paul says, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus kind of easy to let those words slip by if you're not careful uh, at the outset of the epistle i don't know if you remember because as we started preaching through the book uh, it's been a little while in verse 7 of chapter 1 uh, paul says this there are some who trouble you and now here at the end of the book he says let no one cause me trouble you see i think paul is like that young lady who saved her son, who was willing to give himself up for her. He, he says what's been implicit throughout the entire book of Galatians. He says, whoever troubles the churches of Galatia troubles me too. Do you feel that about New Hope? I do. And not just because I'm your pastor, and he, he, he makes it clear. He says, he says his own heart is tied up with the churches that he's found through his God-given ministries. Their enemies are his enemies, and it's no light thing to oppose the appointed messenger of God. Earlier in the letter, Paul had taken pains to emphasize that his apostleship, that his gospel were from God, not from man. You remember that? He talked about that. He, he defended himself, and now he adds further proof. He says, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. What do you think he meant? Some, the word marks here in the Greek, if you want to get technical for a minute, is the, word is the word stigmata. The same word that we use to talk about the marks that Jesus received in his hands and his feet as he was nailed to the cross. Paul's not saying that he has received somehow these uh, uh, spiritual marks of the cross in his body. That's not what he's saying. 
Paul is talking about the fact that he has suffered for the cause of Jesus Christ, for the sake of Jesus. He's not, he's not talking about physical scars from, or, or about some sort of mystical scars, some sort of thing. He's talking about physical scars that he was bearing in his body from the beatings and from the abuse and injuries that he had sustained in his preaching ministry. You know, you know the kind of abuse that Paul endured? Paul kind of draws back the curtain in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 6. He says, he says, in all things, we, were, we commend ourselves as ministers of the gospel in much patience and tribulations and needs and distress, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors. A little later in 2 Corinthians, Paul kind of pulls the curtain a little further back, gives you a little more information about what was going on, maybe an even more frightening catalog of his affliction for the sake of Christ. He says, In stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often, from the Jews five times, I received 40 stripes minus one. That's 2 Corinthians 11, 22. Paul is contrasting himself with false teachers who gave up nothing for the sake of Christ and who sought to bring his readers into bondage. Paul says, five times I've received 39 lashes for the sake of the gospel. Yeah, I bear the scar. His sufferings are not just misfortunes that had to be endured, though. In the sovereign providence of God, they actually served a genuine and a necessary purpose. He puts it like this in Colossians when he writes again. He says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is willing in the afflictions of Christ, or what is lacking for the afflictions of Christ for the sake of the body, which is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. In other words, what Paul's saying in his understanding, his sufferings were a necessary part of his ministry. I want to tell you that sometimes you as followers of Jesus are going to suffer. That's not the pie in the sky uh, all bed of roses gospel message that so many want to give us. There are times when you will suffer. Paul perceived his scars as proof that he was born again. That he was God's. When you enter struggle and strife and difficulty in your life and in your family and in the places where you stand up for the gospel, it is a proof of the work of grace in your heart. When the cross defines you, you'll be able to sing with John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. Those things mark us as his children. He wants these Galatians and those that oppose him and that trouble him to stop opposing the truth of God and to be judged for their presumption. That's what boasting on the cross is all about. That's what it means. It's boasting in the inner work of God that's on us. It's going again and again to the cross and finding our life there. Not finding it in this world or in the things that this world might promise us. Shall we not 
receive the gospel for what it is? I mean, really and truly, it is life from death. It is a life that's given to us by grace. We ought to receive Paul's hearty benediction as we come to the letters in. Look, look at the last 13 words Paul speaks to the Galatians here. Verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, or with your spirit, brothers. Amen. In spite of all the grief and all the heartache and even the beatings and sufferings that that the Galatians had caused him, he still tenderly calls them what? Brothers, brethren. He, he has never lost sight of the fact that, that these Galatian Christians, and that and indeed by implication us, whatever our frailty might be, in spite of the, the threats of apostasy or, or the threats of, of, of living in a fallen world that we live with day after day, Whatever it is, his one concern is that we would rest our faith in Christ alone. Not in how good we are, not in how well we keep the law, not in whether we're circumcised or uncircumcised, not whether we obey the Old Testament or we live in a, in a way free and, and um, full of grace, but in our oneness in Christ. He commits them to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul, I think, understands in the last analysis that only the grace of God in Christ establishes us in truth and in the faith that God's servants proclaim that truth, that God's servants apply it with saving and persevering power in their lives. Paul's words to the Galatians ought to be words of encouragement to us. Live in light of the fact that there's a new creation coming. That our unity is in the gospel of grace that brings forgiveness. That brings the mercy of God to us day to day. Let's pray. Father God, I ask you this morning that we would take to heart the words of the Apostle that we would understand that we have been those who have been loved before the foundation of the world with an everlasting, gracious kind of love. Father, may we endure and bear up under suffering. May we be willing to give all that we have for the glory of the gospel of Christ. May we boast only in his cross. I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.